0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good
1: morning. Um, I invite you to turn to Matthew 22. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be one in the pewback or close by. And if you're using the pewback Bible, it's on page 777. Matthew 22, 22 22-33. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching." This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Audra. Good morning. Did anybody else think 777, it's got to be a good passage. It's got to it's be a good one. Um, no, I'm the only one. Okay, cool. Um, Welcome. My name is Gary. I'm not always as weird, um, but most of the time. Most of the time. Uh, it's good to be with you all. I'm one of, a pa- one of the pastors here at Park Church. If you're um, here and you're new, I want to say welcome to you all. Uh, we're a community that gathers together on Sundays uh, to worship Jesus together. It's what we've been doing. Uh, we're worshiping Him, not just through song, though, but through the way we love one another and welcome each other, through the way we sit under. The words of our king through this book, the Bible. Uh, but we also are sent back out into the city, and we continue to be the people of God all around the city as we gather in small groups throughout the week to encourage one another, pray for one another, walk through life together, but also in the workplaces, in the neighborhoods, in the different areas that God has called us. And so if you're interested in learning about more about how to get involved in our church community or how to participate in the mission God's given us, We'd love to get to know you. Um, Right after the service, there's a room back in the corner uh, over there. It says new here. We take about 10 minutes to get to know know you a little bit and help you find some ways to get more involved in our community and in the mission that God's given us in Denver. Uh, I'm really uh, excited about this passage because Jesus is speaking about... The resurrection, And the resurrection uh, is something that the more I spend time understanding his own vision, the vision that Jesus has for the resurrection, the biblical conception of what the resurrection means, not just for our future, but for the way we live here and now, the more I, I'm kind of growing in my own sense of how important it is for me to spend more and more time thinking about the reality of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Jesus, and what that means for the world itself and the way I operate and live within it. And to kind of leak where this whole thing's going, what I want to say is there is power at work right now in the world. That when we gather together in a morning like this, we are not just gathering together in a stale, dead universe. We're not just gathering together as a kind of a stale, dead people. That the risen Lord Jesus is alive and that resurrection power is at work right now. If there are things in your heart and in your life that feel indifferent dead painful we feel the weariness if there are things in your relationship with Jesus where you just feel stuck there is a power at work in the in the resurrection and there's a power at work right here and right now through the presence of the holy spirit that is available to us to step into it means these moments matter it means god is active god is here and the god who rose jesus from the dead the god who promised that one day the whole world itself will be resurrected that God is at work right now, working in us and among us to do incredible things in our lives and through our lives by the power of the Spirit. And so we're going to pray that this morning will be a time for us to step into the reality of the resurrection. So we're going to turn to Jesus together and we'll pray that his Spirit would work among us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come right now and uh, we confess our need for you. We need you right now. We need your Spirit. If you don't go before us like we sang, uh, we want to stay right here. We want your spirit to move among us. We can sing songs, play instruments, move our lips, have conversations, open up old books, talk about things. But unless your spirit moves in power, then all that we're doing will continue to be lifeless. So we confess our need for you, but we also confess the reality that you promise that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age you profess and you promise that your resurrected power is at work in us and among us to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. and so I pray that you do that this morning, that your spirit would be poured out on us, that you'd raise up the things within us that feel dead. For those that have never known you, that you'd create new life in them, and that you'd awaken our souls to your presence, your power, your goodness and your redeeming love, and that we live accordingly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I, uh, I have a kind of like mixed memories when I look back at my time in seminary and grad school. I have, there's a lot of fondness I have for those years of just the privilege of being able to study scripture. But there's also something about kind of seminary culture and Christian grad school school culture that's weird. It's really weird. If you've never been to a seminary, or a Christian grad school. Like, uh, I'm gonna kinda let you in on some of the weirdness of it. If you have been, you know what I'm talking about. Unless you're in it right now and it feels normal, I just promise you it's not normal. Uh, like, the kind of conversations you have, people don't have, and uh, the kind of things that you're thinking about, most people don't spend too much time thinking about. Uh, but I, I think there's incredible value in it, but it, the culture stuff was weird to me. I remember when I went to Wheaton College for grad school, uh, the first time I went to like a study group, I showed up at the study group, and it was like kind of there, we're going to talk about some article we had read or something like that, and I showed up, and everybody, I mean everybody's got like a Guinness and a pipe, you know, and they're like, oh, I was like, oh, Okay cool. You guys are cool. This is cool. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know that in Christian grad circles that smoking dark or drinking dark beer and smoking tobacco pipes was a way of proving your sophistication. I've now learned that. And I learned that. So the next time I came, I'm like, I'm going to come. I hadn't smoked a tobacco pipe before, but I had a pipe. I got it from Israel the week, the year before. And I'm like, it was a wooden and ornate and super cool. I'm like, they're going to love this. They're going to be like, wow, he must be smart. And, uh, and so I like came and everybody's getting out and they're kind of drinking their Guinness and packing their pipes and I pull out my pipe and the guy next to me is like, hey, that's not a tobacco pipe. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know. (laughs) I I didn't know. That wasn't the vibe they were going for in that study group. Like they were shooting for a different, more of like a C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien vibe, not the kind of like weed pipe vibe, Uh, you know, so like learned, learned real quick on that one. So that was kind of the experience. Like as time, I got I got used to it. I learned the right pipes to have and the right things to, to bring and how to how to be sophisticated. You know, like smart Christians, and uh, and we'd have these conversations and they were always interesting. You know, I love that stuff. I, I loved that stuff at the time. I enjoyed it. I was all in. It's interesting though. Um, It's interesting that as time went on, and this doesn't happen for everybody, there are people out there like, seminary is cemetery, people's souls die. That's not true for everybody. (laughs) But it was for me. Uh, It was like totally, totally true for me. In time... These discussions about God, his word, his mission, his people, what he's revealed to us, ceased to be about my relationship with him, my understanding of what he's doing in the world, how I think about participating in what he's doing in the world, how I know him better. It ceased to be something that would fuel worship and fuel mission, and it became merely academic to me merely academic, and I would feel my soul shriveling over time, and I'd lose touch, but we'd still have these conversations, and in time, it became just a way for me to kind of like work out my own insecurities, kind of prove how smart I am, and... How good I can do at school. And we'd have these conversations. And it was just, not for everybody, again, I would never judge anybody else's heart. Some of the most incredibly worshipful, faithful Christ followers I've met, I met in that environment. But for me, and and for many like me, it became a time of just posturing, improving ourselves, more of like elevating ourselves, trying over each other, and protecting our way of thinking or the tribe that we had come from. And it became really dark for for my own soul. In the midst of all that, God had given me this incredible gift uh, of a wife who loved Jesus, loves the Bible, loves theology, but has zero tolerance for a bunch of people like me working out our insecurities over the dinner table. Uh, she was just never interested. So when we'd gather together and we'd have friends over for dinner and she'd feel that conversation working towards like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, she would call the foul and be like, this is not happening here, not happening now. You all can work out your insecurities in a different environment, just not in front of me. And she was just a way healthier human. Again, loved theology but wasn't interested in people discussing things just to prove themselves to one another, just to compete, just to protect and defend and attack and pull back. She wasn't interested in that. That was an incredible gift to me. Theology matters. Theology is just understanding God, what he's revealed to us, what he's doing in the world. He gave us a whole book that's full of teachings that we're supposed to try to understand. Theology matters. But when those things get disconnected from worship, When they get disconnected from mission, when they get disconnected from the heart of who God is and what he's revealed about himself to his people, it can go to really dark places. And that had happened for a lot of the people in the first century. One of the interactions we're gonna be looking at today, this interaction we're looking at today is a group of people that came to Jesus with a hypothetical question about the resurrection. And they weren't asking the question because they wanted to understand who God was and what the future of the world was. They were asking the question to defend their place in society. They were asking the question to try to discredit Jesus who is rising up in the ranks, gaining more notoriety and reputation among the crowds. And that was a threat to their clinch on power. And so they asked the question, not as a curious, kind of hungry people that want to know God and want to know what God's doing in the world and what he's like. They asked it in a way to play a game, to discredit, to elevate themselves and to protect their tribe. And Jesus wanted nothing of it. But Jesus cared deeply about the topic that they raised. He cared deeply, cares deeply about the resurrection. The resurrection had personal importance to Jesus, immediate importance to Jesus, not just for what was going to be happening to him in the week to come, though it was massively important for his future in the next few days, fueling him, encouraging him, anchoring him, motivating him to follow through with what God had called him to as the savior of the world, the Messiah who was coming to lay down his life for human beings who had turned away from him. The resurrection had massive importance for him but it also had massive importance for what he was doing in the world, what he wanted to do in human beings and what he wanted to do for the cosmos, the world itself. And so he's gonna welcome us into that today, quickly dismissing the kind of cheesy theological game that these insecure people were playing to protect themselves and bringing us into the beauty and the goodness and the power and the meaning of what he is doing in the world. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So what I want us to do is uh, we're gonna kind of work through the passage. We got some work to do, and so we gotta like put on your thinking cap. So what we're gonna do we're gonna walk through the passage. I need to correct a really common pervasive misunderstanding about our future and what life after death is in biblical understanding. And then we're gonna talk about why that matters for us. So we're gonna walk through the passage correct some significant misunderstandings, I think, and then lead us into what does that matter for us here and now and the way we operate in this world. So we're in Matthew chapter 22. If you have a Bible, uh, open it up. If you don't have one, you can grab one in front of you. I want you to see kind of how this works out in the passage. Contextually, where we're at is in the middle of Holy Week. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. That coming Friday, he's going to be crucified And on the Sunday to follow, on the third day he will rise again. We are in that week. Jesus has walked into this space knowing that it would lead to incredible conflict with the religious leaders. That conflict had been growing for months and months and months, really for the past couple years, as they sense that Jesus is coming up in a different way and he's advocating for a different kind of future than they were. But also, in this week, Jesus has directly confronted the religious powers that be in Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem. He flipped over the money tables. He drove out the money changers. He was acting like the temple was his house. And Jesus was saying, yes, indeed, it is my father's house. It's my father's house. And this is a space where people are supposed to come and commune with the living God. And you've made it a den of thieves. And he drove them out as this symbol of what the religious elite had done, that they had continued to kind of protect themselves with their teachings and their authority structures and their principles and their traditions. They had protected themselves at the expense of others. And Jesus comes in. He curses a fig tree as a sort of visual parable to say what you have done, your lack of fruitfulness in God's kingdom, shows that you are dead to the core. And what's coming to this community that's dead to the core is destruction. And 40 years later, in 70 AD, that's what would come to Jerusalem. So it would be destroyed by the Romans. Into that space, Jesus gives three indicting parables that are intended to indict the religious elite. One about a father with two sons, one about a vineyard and a And a vineyard owner and these wicked tenants, and then one about a wedding feast that Josh covered two weeks ago. And now he's giving three kind of series of conflicts, questions. Last week, Neil covered this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians about taxes to Caesar. This week, he's interacting with a group called the Sadducees about the resurrection. Next week, he's going to talk about the law and the purpose of the law. So here we are in this kind of This series of conflicts where Jesus is challenging the powers that be, next up on the scene is the Sadducees. Look with me, chapter 22, verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say that there's no resurrection. Let's talk for a minute about the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a very small group that we don't know a ton about. They kind of pop up here and there in the Gospels, but they weren't a large group in first century Judaism. Judaism. They're a small group, but that small group had wealth, had influence, and was currently in power in Jerusalem. In fact, the chief priest Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Many of the leading chief priests were Sadducees. So they weren't a huge group, but they had influence, they had power, they had wealth, they had comfort. They had found a way to kind of coexist with Rome, and they had found a way to operate in this system where they, again, had that power, maintained that power, but felt comfortable with the way that things were. And so they looked back, as they looked at the scriptures, the Sadducees only accepted, as from God, the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah, the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible. They saw the writings and the prophets as later editions that were not of God, that sometimes created deviations and distortions of things that were communicated about in Torah. Of most relevance for our passage today, for them, is they did not see in the Torah any clear teachings about a future resurrection. And so when they'd hear about teachings from, let's say, Daniel or from Isaiah, where resurrection theology is much clearer in the prophets, they saw those as erroneous, as not true, and so they held that there's no resurrection. For the Sadducees, When the body dies, the soul dies with it, and you're done. So their main concept of of the future, what what matters in life, is live a good life, have family, follow the commandments, obey God, have kids, let your kids carry on your name in perpetuity, let them carry on your land, let them carry on these things, but you're dead and gone, and now your offspring carry on your name, and that's what matters, Which which is interesting, again. As I think about kind of their own kind of rejection of the belief in the resurrection, this is not kind of uh, uh, there's not like a kind of unbiased perspective here. This is what we'd call motivated reasoning. They don't need the resurrection to be true. They don't need it to be true. They're actually pretty comfortable with the way that things are. The resurrection and the promise of a resurrection is a promise of a cosmic reversal, a renewal of all things, where broken things are mended, where power structures are flipped upside down, where the first are last and the last are first, and God makes all things new. But they had power, they had wealth, they had influence, they had comfort, they had negotiated a relationship with Rome that was working. They didn't need a resurrection to be true. They didn't need it to be true, which, which to me, as I thought about that reality, I think, what a, what a convicting thing to think about. Do you need it to be true? Do we live in such a way where we're so sacrificial in the way we live? We're so attentive to the brokenness around us and inside of us and in the world. We're so hungry to see all things made new. We're so discontent with the brokenness within us and the brokenness around us that the idea of a resurrection is the most powerful thing you could think about. A promise that all broken things will be made new, that everything that's been broken by sin and death and pain will be reversed and redeemed. That's good news for people that are paying attention to the brokenness within them and the brokenness around them. For the Sadducees, they dismissed it as irrelevant. not just irrelevant, but, but silly. And so that's what's happening here in the passage. Look, look with me at what they say. So they come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow, and raise up offspring for his brother. They are referring to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25, which is within the five books of Moses. Deuteronomy 25, where there's a law that we call the Leverite marriage. And here's how the law is communicated. If a husband and a wife get married and they don't have kids, because what matters immensely to the people of God in the Old Covenant is their land, their offspring, their heritage, their name, the perpetuity of their name, their lineage, that if a woman marries a man and that man dies before they've had kids, that name would fall out. It would just disappear and vanish. It would dissolve into history and have no perpetuity, no offspring. And so the law was that a brother of the deceased man would then come and marry that woman and when they had children, those children would carry on the name of the deceased brother. So the name of the deceased brother would continue so that all the names of the children of Israel would continue to grow, that lands would be cultivated and protected and distributed and that was kind of what they thought of in terms of even the covenantal blessings inside the Old Covenant and so, so this law was there. It was really there. You can read about it and it's kind of working itself out in the book of Ruth with Boaz as the kinsman redeemer that now marries Ruth as a way to continue on Elimelech's seed. And, uh, and you can learn a little bit about it there. But the point is, for them, they took that law as a given. And they took that law and they said, okay, we're going to start with that as a given and then we're going to test out your resurrection thing. Let's see if resurrection works with Leverite marriage law. We know the Leverite thing's clear. It's in Deuteronomy 25. Let's see if it works with the resurrection. So they test it out with a hypothetical scenario. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. And having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. And so too the second died. And the third and all the way down to the seventh. Something's fishy here in this situation. Just feels like it. We don't know, but something feels fishy. Uh, just weird. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of husbands dying. Um A lot of husbands dying. So he says, so to the second, third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman herself died. In the resurrection, in your so-called resurrection, in the way you and the Pharisees and all these other people are talking about it, in your your conceived future, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they were all married to her. So he said, all right, we, we did the law thing, on down to seven, hypothetical scenario, let's say it happened in the resurrection, which you, Jesus, say you believe in and these Pharisees say they believe in. In that future, who's she gonna be married to? Gonna be seven guys and this lady, like, and they're kind of, it's like a reductio ad absurdum, which is like reducing your opponent's argument to absurdity, like making it seem silly. That's essentially what they're doing. They're like, your resurrection idea is idiotic. Doesn't make sense. If we start with the law, and try to conceive of a future inside that framework, it makes no sense. And so for them, they're saying it's silly. Now, they're not genuinely curious. Again, they're trying to publicly discredit Jesus to make his convictions and his things seem silly. So maybe the crowds who are surrounding there will be like, oh yeah, that is weird. The Sadducees are right. Let's keep them in power. Let's get rid of Jesus. That's kind of what they're hoping the effect of this will be. Wasn't. It wasn't the effect of it. Uh, Anytime you try to play a theology game with Jesus, you lose. Just like... Basic. It's kind of like one of those things, and they did. So here's what Jesus says in response. He says, "You're wrong," uh, which I love. It's just short, simple. It's like a. It's like you're you're like so far off. I don't know if Jesus gets exacerbated. I don't know if he ever, you know, grabbed his forehead like, you know. But I can imagine that in this scenario, like. You guys are killing me right now with this. Um, And uh, so he's there. He says, you're wrong. You're way off. And and here's how he says, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're going to take the first five books of the Bible. Cool. Nice. You memorized Deuteronomy 25. Good work. Well done. You missed the whole point. You literally missed the whole point of the story of God. Even if we just started with your five books, you missed the whole point of those five books. You don't get the story of God. You don't get the story that you're living in. You don't get the story of the world. You don't get what happened, where it's come from, where it's going. If you dismiss the resurrection, it means you don't get God's story, number one. And two, you don't get his power. The power that God is working in the universe, that the Creator King is at working in this promise to renew, to remake, to transform the creation itself, you don't understand the power that's at work in the universe. You've dismissed and missed the point of the story and you've ignored the power of God. And so now Jesus is going to begin to unpack how he sees those things working out. He starts on their terms with their question. He says this, for in the resurrection, and I want you to hear that, in the resurrection. We're gonna come back in a moment and clarify. The resurrection is not the same thing as saying in heaven when you die. I'm gonna clarify that. I'm gonna clarify that. In the resurrection, heaven's gonna come up here in a second. Jesus speaking about a future resurrection. He's gonna refer to heaven in a moment and and we'll clarify what that is. This is the thing we'll have to work on for a minute. In the resurrection, they, human beings, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What's he saying? There's a lot of misconceptions even about this verse. The way people hear it is, You don't get it, when you die, you're gonna go to heaven and be like angels and float around in a disembodied existence. That's the way people tend to think about it. That's the way a lot of us think about what happens after you die. The future for human beings, we often think, is you die, your body goes in the grave, you in a spiritual form come out and you get to be disembodied like the angels in the heavenly realm and apparently there's no marriage. That's what it can feel like he's saying, but it's not what he's saying. You have to pay attention, one, to what's actually being said, and two, to the whole story of the biblical narrative. So what Jesus is saying is in the resurrection, now there's a really defined and kind of developed sense of what that resurrection meant, that there's a sense that the whole world itself would be made new, the creation itself. We sang about it a minute ago, that the new heavens and the new earth come together, that the future of the world, the the ultimate future of the world is a resurrection reality where creation, material, embodied human beings on a material, physical earth and the heavenly realm where God is will be remarried That what we experience and see in the Garden of Eden where God with human beings in relationship in a garden where there's abundance and beauty and love and Trinitarian fullness and people participating in the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and showing love to one another, that experience will be the eventual experience of the world. What what was experienced in a garden in the midst of the cosmos will eventually be experienced across the globe where human beings, remade, new, embodied, are with God, Any sinless, no broken, no curse, no injustice, no pain, no weariness, no suffering, no divisions. That's the future of the world. And so what Jesus says is in that resurrection, marriage isn't going to be a necessary reality. Talk about why that is. Marriage won't be a necessary. It has an important place here and now but not an ultimate place here and now. It has an important place here now, but not ultimate, and it will not be needed in the future. In the future, you will be like the angels, not in terms of the disembodied spiritual being sense, but in the don't get married and have babies sense. And not in heaven with them floating in the sky somewhere in the resurrection, but that's where they are right now, is they're in a realm that's unseen. So the angels in the unseen realm don't have bodies, physical bodies, they don't get married, and they don't have babies. In the resurrection, that will be true of you. You will... Not be getting married and you will not be having babies. But the resurrection is a material future resurrection. So here's what we have to do for a second. We have to clarify and I'm going to come back and talk to all of you who just got disappointed because your marriage is awesome and you just start feel really sad right now. We're going to talk about that. For all of you that just got excited because your marriage is struggling, we'll talk about that. that's a counseling session. of something different. Uh, for all of you that have never been married and you're like, no, that's the one thing I really want in life. We'll talk about that. Talk about that. It's a good desire, not a bad desire. Marriage has an incredibly beautiful space in this world, but it's not ultimate. But let's start here. In the biblical conception, the future of this world is a resurrected reality. The way that Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19, verse 28, is he uses this word, palingenesia, which means the rebirth of the world, like the regenesising of the world. Genesia, Genesis, palen, again. We're gonna have another Genesis. The world's gonna be reborn. The world itself The world itself is going to be born again. We think about that term as what happens to us when we put our faith in Christ. And so it is. We are the beginning of the new creation. The beginning. But the world itself will have a whole new rebirth. in it's physical, it's material. Heaven and earth will remarry, as it were, and become one. And this great separation that happened when human beings rejected the reign of God and are exiled from his presence as an indictment, as a punishment on sin, our life in this world is then affected by brokenness and pain and darkness and sin and corruption and death and physical ailments and suffering and natural disasters and divisions and injustice that permeates our society. God has promised in that space to intervene in human history, to deal with the problem of sin, to wash a people, cleanse all those who hope in him, to cause those people to be a part of the new creation, and then to ultimately come back and make the whole thing new. That's where the whole story is going. You can read about it in Revelation 21, Revelation 22, or right here with Jesus. That's where it's all headed. In the meantime, what happens? Like, what happens when you die? There are places in the Bible, not many, that speak about that reality. Places like 2 Corinthians that say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That when a human being dies, as grievous as you experience that and the pain there, and a body is buried or cremated or whatever happens eventually makes its way back to dust, that the spirit of that person is in the presence of the Lord. What's that like? I don't know. Jesus said it to the thief on the cross. He said, remember me when you enter the kingdom. And what Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That phrase paradise, that phrase paradise comes from the Hebrew word for garden, garden. It's like you get to kind of experience that, the, the God space. You get to experience life in the God space, but that's not the, that's not the eternal space. It's like stage one in the after-death future. So if the kind of life after death it comes in two stages, there's this intermediate state where these disembodied spirits are with Jesus in some form, in some fashion. It's, it's beautiful, it's good, it's free from suffering and death and pain. and What else? I don't know. What the Bible is clear about is where it's ultimately headed when Christ comes again. When he comes again, he makes all things new. The earth itself is made new. And there's a rebirth to the universe. Heaven and earth become one. The people of God, the dead are raised. That all of the graveyards that you've walked through and seen as you've grieved the loss of loved ones, those are like gardens where seeds have been planted. And in the resurrection, new life emerges. Bodies, reconstituted, remade. Spirit and body come back together. That we are here in a remade experience To experience the love of God, community, friendship, life, food, enjoyment of creation, all of it for all of eternity. It's a beautiful, beautiful future. And so to help people understand kind of the the framework of it, the Apostle Paul will say things like this, and he's like, what will it be like in the future? He'll use an example of a seed, like that's us now, and in the resurrection, like a full-grown plant. Is everything in the seed there? Does it like if there's continuity, in other words, there's something that's connected, and there's discontinuity, there's something that's different. Like if I showed you an acorn, I'm like, hey guys, this is an acorn, we had never seen an oak tree, or we didn't know that an acorn became an oak tree, would you think that an acorn would become an oak tree? No way, but did it? It did, it's a part of the acorn story. We are the acorn, the resurrection is the oak tree. It's awesome. Whatever marriage becomes of marriage, whatever becomes of those relationships, it's better. More beautiful, more abundant, more powerful, more compelling, more inviting, more redemptive. It's beautiful. The way that this passage uses it is this idea of birth and marriage, the way that Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19 is birth. If you were to see a three-week uh, kind of gestational period fetus, would you imagine that that would become you, you? Like this, when three weeks is like small, and it's hard, it doesn't look like a human. If you've never seen, look it up. It just doesn't look like a human. But it does become a human. It comes a human through the process of birth. I heard Tim Mackey from the Bible Project talking about this, and it was compelling to me to think there are organs present in the kind of fetus before birth that are not being used, like lungs, full of fluid. After birth, these organs that were present but latent will have this fully functioning purpose after the birth. There are also organs present in a fetus before birth, like the umbilical cord, that on the other side, no longer needed. And Jesus is saying marriage is like an umbilical cord. (laughs) Not exactly, but similar. You get the idea. Like the idea of marriage is something that shows us covenant love and intimacy and oneness, to be inside a covenant where you can be naked and unashamed and and have this committed relationship, known and loved. And the fruit that comes from that is life, multiplying life. That's the idea. But it's just a picture. It's not ultimate, which is incredible. It's freeing because it means you can actually enjoy wherever God is right now, whatever he has for you right now, that that idea of this marriage and babies is a gift to understand something, but it's not where it's all headed. In fact, Jesus himself didn't experience it. Paul himself and many others didn't experience it. I want to read to you just a couple simple quotes. Uh, I say simple. Um, they're not simple at all. They're both really profound and heady. Um, a couple quotes. Um, from two of my favorites. One is from uh, Jonathan Edwards. The other's from C.S. Lewis. Uh, But just to give us a taste of kind of what, what does it mean to get a little more creative about the way we experience the joys of this world? Here's from Edwards. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. These are foretastes and pictures and symbols things that are given as good gifts to be enjoyed, but they're not ultimate. Marriage isn't ultimate. Having children isn't ultimate. Which means there's an enjoyment available to every person in the gifts that God's given you in the station he's put you in right now. It's a beautiful reality. And C.S. Lewis talks about how do we, how do we let that reality shape the way we engage in these gifts? Listen to this, this I, I quote this, I try to quote this like three or four times a year on purpose, just a discipline. I think I'm at three. I'll try to get it in maybe one more time before the end of the year, just because it's worth it. Just worth it. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis on hope. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's a such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's a such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's a such thing as sex. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the, for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. And I must make, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death." I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. This is the word of C.S. Lewis. Thanks be to God. It is, is love it, love it. Wow, Uh, my my marriage and my family is my favorite gift on the planet. It's what I enjoy most about life, truly, what what a gift. The second I ask of my marriage, or ask of my children to be the source of my joy. I'm asking something that it cannot satisfy and it'll lead me towards disillusionment, frustration, irritability, anger, anxiety, and it will crush those around me. When I receive it as a gift and thank God for it, but I hold it loosely and don't treat it as an idol, that's the source of goodness, but treat it as a gift from God and let it, Direct my gaze up the ray of sun of my family up to the sun himself to see his glory, his goodness, his love. Then marriage can be in its rightful space. What it means is you don't need, you can be honest about the brokenness within you, the brokenness in your family. You can be honest about your desires for marriage, but you can enjoy the goodness of God in the midst of all of it. You can be honest about your desire for children. It's a good desire, nothing wrong with it. It's an emotional desire. Sensitive, I get that. But to know That singleness is a beautiful gift of God through which he's showing something stunning in the world. That say I can bypass that gift and find the sun himself. I can bypass that stream and chase up another stream and find the ocean himself, the fountain himself. That's beautiful. You're free then. You're free to let things be what they are and not force them to be something they were never designed to be. It's a stunning reality that Jesus is saying, where this whole world is headed is a future where the institution of marriage is no longer needed. Marriage was needed to fill the earth and subdue it. It was needed. It's happened. When the resurrection comes, the world will be filled with human beings, and they will know God. And like the angels don't get married and have babies, neither will human beings get married and have babies. And there will be joy in beauty and abundance, how much? Like like the difference between the acorn and the oak tree, much, right? That kind of much. Like blow your mind, start to get a little more creative about the future of the world and it can be really motivating. And what he says next is a powerful reality. Let's look at what he says next in the next passage. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? He's like, hey, Sadducees, Torah lovers, remember Exodus three? That's in your 5, right? They're like yeah, it's in my 5. Remember that scene where Yahweh comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush and tells Moses that he's going to use Moses to be an agent through which God's going to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt? And they're like, yeah, remember Remember in that scene where Moses is like, No, not me, I can't do it. And he's like, No, I'm calling you to do it. And he's like, Well, I can't talk. He's like, Well, I'm going to provide for you in that space. And he's like, Well, let's say I do it. Who am I going to tell them sent me? What God is redeeming them from slavery in Egypt? And Yahweh says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus takes that statement from Exodus 3 and he extracts from it this truth He is not God of the dead. But of the living. In other words, he's saying, if God says, "I'm the God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who died 400 plus years ago," if he's saying that to Moses 400 years later, it means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't dead and gone. Like the Sadducees would say, when they die, they're gone. And Jesus says they're not gone. And he's not just saying it because of some grammar thing, like because I said I am the God, it means that they must be alive. He's saying it because he gets the story. He gets the story that God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob was a promise that was meeting humanity in a place of brokenness as humanity had rejected the reign of God, was separated from his presence, feeling brokenness and death and injustice and pain and weariness and conflict and resentment and self-righteousness. As that covered the world, instead of God saying, I'm done forever and always with the world, he intervened in human history, speaking to Abraham, saying, through you and through your offspring, the blessing of my presence will come back to the world. All things will be made Abraham believed God in that space. He went out from Ur of the Chaldees. He went to a country where he didn't know where he was going, and he died not having experienced fulfillment to that promise. He died without the fulfillment to the promise. But Hebrews said, because he knew that there's a city whose designer and builder is God that the future of the world, the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be made true. And so when Jesus says Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are there, they're waiting still the resurrection. And this promise will come true for them. This promise is coming true for them. They don't get the story. What he's saying is when you look at the world around you and you own the brokenness inside of you and you own the brokenness around us, You're honest about the weariness and the anxieties and the fears and insecurities. And all we try with our politics, all we try with our efforts, all we try with civilization after civilization to finally rebuild the garden temple, to rebuild like paradise, and we can't do it. It's like, one day I'll do it. It's coming. It's coming. How do we know it's coming? Because three days later, Jesus would start the whole thing off. He laid down his life on the cross believing that God would vindicate him. And when Jesus laid down his life on the cross, he's not just dying arbitrarily, he's suffering for the root cause of our rebellion. He's paying the penalty for human rebellion, on account of which the world has entered into this curse. And in that space, having paid the penalty, he's not just forgiving our sins, he's not just reconciling us to God, he's defeating the cause of that brokenness, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. Not just to say, look, the, the death really counted, but to begin the whole new creation. To begin that story, new creation happened in Jesus. He is the beginning. He's like the first fruits of a harvest. Like, oh man, broken things can be made new. Oh man, dead things can be made alive. Oh man, grief can be redeemed. How do we know? Jesus Christ is risen. The new creation began in Christ. What's powerful is Christ says, Jesus says that all who follow him will participate in that. So the Apostle Paul will say, If anyone's in Christ, new creation. What does that mean? Resurrection power is at work right now. When you get to talk to the creator of the universe through prayer, new creation. When you forgive someone who's wronged you because the spirit of God is teaching you to be who you were designed to be, new creation. When you show love and humble service towards somebody, when you show compassion to a stranger or a foreigner, when you show kindness and servant-heartedness in your job, when you lean into the hard conversations and speak the truth and love, new creation, new creation. We're experiencing the beginnings like an appetizer, a foretaste of what's to come, and so we have the new creation world and the, and the body of death that we long and lug around with us, and we wait for that day when Christ comes again and makes it all new, all new. No more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more weariness, no more grief, all the tears that we weep wiped away. That's where it's headed. That has massive implications for us today. You can face the brokenness in your heart knowing that new creation has begun and it's coming. You can look at the brokenness in the world. You can lean in with purpose, with care, with compassion, but also with hope and all the frustrations, all the setbacks, all the things that feel like, why can't the world finally be made right? It will be made right. When Christ comes again, it will be made right. You can live your life free from trying to suck out of life all of the pleasures that you feel like life should give you. All the pleasures of marriage or family or freedom or vacations or job or money or wealth or possessions, whatever it is, you don't have to try to suck all that joy out of life, asking creation to do what creation was never designed to do. New creation's coming. Joy, abundance, ever-increasing joy with God forever. That's where the world's headed. And the more we as a people become resurrection people, Easter people, the more you can live attentive to the power at work, leaning into it, sitting on tiptoes, expecting, anticipating what God will do when he comes again to make all things new. That kind of life will free us to live life of purpose, of love, but also a life of hope as we wait. We wait, like Christians have waited for millennia. We wait. Learning to wait for the coming of Christ is an important part of the Christian faith. May God help us to become a people that wait with anticipation. Let's pray. Jesus, we come right now and we ask that you would awaken in us an awareness of your power at work right now. That you would give us a sense of hunger, a sense of desire. A sense of anticipation that the same power that was used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead is at work right now to do immeasurably more than we could ask or think right here, right now among us to liberate people from sin, to awaken people from rebellion, to bring healing and transformation into our lives, to give us tastes of the resurrection through physical healing, to give us tastes of the resurrection through emotional reconciliation to give us taste of the resurrection through the ability to find growth and maturity in areas where we felt stuck, to give us the taste, these foretastes of resurrection power. So would you help us to believe that? Would you give us eyes to see that we live in an enchanted world? That's bursting with power. But also would you help us to carry that with patient endurance because we live in a world that's full of brokenness. And do we hold those things together, eagerly participating in what you're doing in the world. Through the gospel, you're welcoming people into the beginnings of the rebirth. People are being born again already. All over this world, people are being made new again, even while we wait for the creation itself. And So help us to grow in our Christian imagination to grow in the way we see the world, the way we love, the way we engage. Help us not to live as though there's no eternity, as there's no resurrection. But help us to so firmly hold to the reality of the coming kingdom, the reality of the future resurrection, that we feel free to live this life with meaning and purpose and sacrificial love. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.